book of 1 Kings, chapter number 19. 1 Kings, chapter number 19, as we continue on in our series entitled, The Lord God of Elijah. 1 Kings, chapter number 19, we'll begin our reading tonight in verse number 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all of the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. I said this morning that I was going to preach tonight on the subject of defeating depression. Depression has been called the common coal of our emotions. It affects all of us at some time or another. Longfellow wrote, some must lead and some must follow, but all have feet of clay. And he was exactly right because some of God's greatest servants have been troubled with depression. One of the most surprising things of my life was whenever I discovered many years ago, after reading everything I could get my hands on by Charles Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers, and some claim the greatest preacher that ever lived since Christ, and I'm not going to debate that, but I do have a picture of Spurgeon hanging in my office, by the way. <laughs> I shouldn't tell it, but I even have a bobblehead doll of Spurgeon that my dear son, <laughs> he, he, he brought me that. I was the only one I've ever seen, so... Uh, but anyway, Spurgeon, as famous as he was and as great of a preacher as he was, was deeply troubled at times by depression. He had a school for preachers. In fact, I have his book, Lectures to My Students. One day, many years ago, in reading that book, I came across a chapter called Fits of Depression. And it just blew my mind whenever he described the troubles that he had had with depression. That each year he had to take sometimes two or three months in, in order to recover. And he and his wife would go off and uh, just whatever needed to get himself rested and back on track. He suffered from some physical problems that made everything extremely difficult. And, and, and the, the weight of that great ministry there to the Bible students, the preachers, the orphans, and, 
and the church itself and all of that just bore down upon him to the point that it literally uh, contributed to the depression that he experienced. Well, here we see Elijah. Boy, whenever you just hear that word Elijah, automatically you're thinking of this giant of a man that can withstand anything. And boy, he's not afraid of nothing. And uh, he would certainly never get depressed or discouraged. But when we look back at chapter 18, we see that he goes there from the summit of success now to the very depths of despair. Remember, this happened right after a great victory. The false prophets had been slain on Mount Carmel, and after they had been slain, uh, Ahab the king, you'll remember, when he received the news that it was going to rain after the prayer of Elijah, Ahab hitched up his chariot and headed for Jezreel, and and. Elijah ran ahead of him and got there first. But whenever Ahab, whenever he arrived there, he began to tell Jezebel, his wife, probably the most wicked woman that ever lived, had been responsible for killing many of the prophets of God. And he told her the story, and immediately she issued an order to put Elijah to death. And so he gets a copy or, you know, gets the message some way by messenger that that she intends to have him put to death, you know, by that time tomorrow. And so he hits the road running. Let me tell you, depression and discouragement can be devastating. And, and and here we see him on the run. He's looking for a hiding place. We think of all of the different ways that depression can affect us. For one thing, you know, it steals our joy. And the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. It steals our joy. It troubles our mind. It lengthens our days. It seems the day will never end when you're in a state of depression. It weakens your body. That's a proven fact. It, it stops the work that you are involved in. It can ruin your testimony. It can hinder others who are around you, that is your associates. It destroys relationships. It imparts guilt. It grieves God and delights the devil. And so there's no end to the things that depression can cause. And now here we find Elijah in just such a state as that. I think it would be good if we look at the reasons for his depression, the contributing factors, because human nature never changes. Human needs never vary. It's always the same from generation to generation. And if we can in some way figure out what contributed to his depression, It'll give us, you know, sort of a heads up on what to look for in our life, those danger signs. The first thing I think that is obvious that's recorded in chapter 18 is friction. Here we find him in, at odds with 850 false prophets. 
And I've been at odds with cantankerous deacons and treasures and so forth, but I've never been in a struggle with 850 false prophets. You know, I've had preachers criticize me, which, you know, is all right, but I've never, I've never had 850 prophets come out against me. And, you know, that takes a toll on a person emotionally. It puts you under tremendous pressure. And I think that's one reason that in the New Testament, in the epistles, where the letters are written to the churches about how to conduct themselves, that over and over and over again, we see the call for unity in the churches. Because we can, listen, we can believe all of the right things, but if we are divided, mark it down, we're going to be greatly hindered. And, 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 you know, churches after a while get really good at covering up their divisions. You know, we pretend that they don't exist when in reality there is a great divide many times between church members. Sometimes it's more than a divide. Sometimes it's a downright argument, you know, between the two. And you might have a, a peace treaty agreement that we won't talk about it but you still feel the same way toward one another. And let, let me tell you, that can be a great hindrance to the church. Whenever Peter was talking about the husband-wife relationship, and he talks about husbands dwell with your wives according to knowledge, and he goes on dealing with, you know, that issue and the wife's reverence for the husband and so forth, he makes this statement that your prayers be not hindered. It didn't, you know, that that's an interesting statement. Because if everything depends on prayer like I think it does, and our prayers are hindered as a result of friction in our relationships, we're getting ourselves in deep trouble. So that's one thing that's obvious. Not only friction, but when we come to chapter 19 and the first three verses that I just read we see another factor, and that's the fear factor. Now, remember, he has just gained this great victory. And as a result of that, he comes down, goes into Jezreel, and all of a sudden he receives the message that his life is being sought. Now the enemy is the government. You know, it's one thing to have the false prophets against you, it's another thing when the government is against you and the queen has issued a decree to have you put to death. And so he has just conquered the false prophets and now the threat of a woman sends him into hiding. He, he is frightened at this point and for good reason. She's already had several of the, of the prophets of God put to death and now she's looking for him. I'll never forget years ago, there was a woman, I, I hadn't been at this church very long, and uh, she was the piano player. She had a big, boy, I've had a lot of trouble with piano players until I, until I moved here, until I moved here. And she, and she had a large number of her family in the church, and so it's one of those things, you know, boy, if, she, if I get on the wrong side of her, this this is this is going to be this going to be serious, and boy, she stopped me in the parking lot. I can't remember what I preached, but she didn't like it, and uh, and she stopped me out there, and she made this statement. 
I can repeat it almost by verbatim. She said, you know, she said, the last preacher I prayed for died, and I'm praying that God will move you out of here. I thought, whoo, boy. Thankfully, the next week, another lady in the church got wind of that. Somebody had told her what had transpired. And boy, she caught that woman out there in the parking lot. And this woman happened to be a preacher's kid. And she read her the riot act. And, uh, and I've always been thankful for that 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 woman standing up for her pastor but let me tell you fear fear can do terrible things to people it can paralyze you there are preachers that live every day in fear afraid they're going to offend someone and consequently what they preach how they preach everything they do is governed by their fear that somebody's going to be upset you know and it's a terrible thing. And here we find Elijah afraid. He is afraid for his own life. But that's not the only factor. You know, sometimes if you're just dealing with one of these factors or two of these factors, you can say, all right, I can get beyond this. I can fight through my fears. I can get by the friction that's going on between me and others. But if you look at verse 4 and verse number 10, you see there's something else and it's futility. Notice what he said in verse number 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. Now here's what I want you to notice. For I am not better than my fathers. Now look at verse number 10. I wonder whoever told him that he was, what made him ever think he was. Verse 10, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, which is all true, but notice, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I mean, here's a guy at the point that, that he feels like everything is futile, that, that that his efforts are all in vain. He's overwhelmed with this sense of loneliness now. He's afraid. He is hiding under a juniper tree. His counsel has been ignored by those that he loved dearly. And now he just feels like, well, it's just useless to go on. I feel like I've been rejected by the people. I might as well just die. What a pitiful picture that is. But let me tell you, don't you ever suppose that something like that couldn't happen to you? You know, you might stand up against some things, but there are other things that will pull the rug out from under your feet and leave you laying flat of your back. And that feeling of futility, what's the use you know, I've tried to do everything right and everything is going wrong and nobody cares and here I am all alone by myself. And that's the way he's feeling. 
But look at verse 5. There's another factor that becomes apparent when you read verse 5. It says, And he lay and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. There's the fatigue factor. Elijah was physically exhausted. Remember, he's the object of a manhunt now. He wasn't weary of the work. He wasn't complaining because God called him to be a prophet. You know, he's not weary of the work, but he's weary in the work. And that can happen to anyone. It's a danger for everybody that's involved in the work of the Lord. And that's why Paul gave so many different warnings says, therefore, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know your work in the Lord is not in vain. And, and, and several different verses that he alludes to that, to that fact, that fatigue can wear on us to the point that we just feel like we can't go on anymore. But then there's another factor. Look at verse number 10. And I call this the forgetfulness. Notice what he says. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken the covenant, thrown down thine altar, slain the prophets with the sword, and I even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. How easy it is for us to forget He knew very well that all of the prophets were not dead. He knew that. You say, well, how do you know that? He knew that because you'll remember earlier back in chapter 18 or 17 there where Obadiah had hid the prophets, many of them, by 50. 50 in this cave and 50 in that cave. He knew that. But, you know, it's a, it's a... It's amazing how we exaggerate everything when we're trying to express how we feel. We blow everything out of proportion. He he said to the Lord, he said, you know, I've been faithful and I've done this and I've done that. And now I'm the only one left. You know, preachers get to feeling that way a lot of times. You know, we feel like, well, you know, there's no real independent fundamental, you know, Baptist church preachers that are really standing A lot of them here in America. And we ought to thank God for that. We're not in this alone. Now notice the results of it. And boy, we could talk a long time about this. We've looked at the reasons. And by the way, let me say, we don't see all the possible results here that, that could be mentioned. Because in this situation, his depression was short lived. Thank God for that. But the point is, that for one thing, his ministry has come to a standstill. He's wallowing in self-pity. And, and if not defeated, depression becomes devastation to us. It causes us great harm. That's why it has to be defeated. We always need to consider the results of it, which you can make a long list of all of the different results, the consequences of us being in a state of depression. You know, it might do us good to do that and just look at those things on the list and realize, I've got to get out of this. Well, 
That brings us down to the remedy for depression. And there are several things that I think that are obvious here. Notice I said that his recovery happened quickly. Thank God for that because some get mired in depression literally for years before they get out. And some never get out. But he got out in a hurry and there's a good reason for that. The first remedy that's obvious here is rest. You know, God made us in such a way that we need rest, whether we think so or not. By the very fact, you know, that God ordained that we work six days and we have a day of rest. God intends for us to rest. It's like the old saying, the bow that is always strung will break eventually. It will weaken and it will break. And we have to take time to, to just restore our strength through rest. He got under the juniper tree and went to sleep. You know, a lot of times we think, well, this is no time for sleep. Oh, no, this is the right time for sleep. Because whenever we get exhausted, in fact, it's just been... It's just been in recent years that, that the problems associated with sleep deprivation has really come to light. I, I've heard some of those reports, and it's shocking all of the bad things that can happen to you as a result of not getting enough sleep. I know that people say, well, you know, I don't sleep at three or four hours a, a night. Well, you, you know, if you're doing that intentionally, I wouldn't brag about it. Now, sometimes, you know, you may only get three or four hours sleep, but you know, hopefully it's not intentionally. It's because you just, you know, have problems that you can't sleep any longer than that. But we all need rest. I was writing an article the other day, and I've alluded to the same thing in other articles about the what I feel like are the two best pieces of medical equipment on earth that nobody even uses anymore, and that's a rocking chair and a porch swing. I think everybody would be better off if they had a rocking chair and a porch swing and would take time to just sit and think and rest and get out of the rat race. So here we see him resting. Secondly, we see that there is a release of emotion. And, and, and I'm really amazed in all of this at the way that God's dealing with Elijah. Maybe you noticed it. How, how tender God was with him. God could have yanked him up by the nap of the neck and said, you, you knucklehead, get back out there and get in the fight and so forth. But God allowed him to rest, and then God woke him up, and then God fed him. God instructed him, and, and through all of this, he was finally revived. But at this point, he's not fully recovered. He's back on his feet, but there's still issues beneath the surface. And that's why, if you look at verse number 9, God asks a question. What doest thou here, Elijah? Now, God didn't ask that in order to, to find out the answer. God knew exactly why he was there. He asked Elijah that, I think, to get Elijah to open up and to talk. 
Because when a person is in a state of depression, they tend to isolate themselves and shut everybody else out. And, and, and let me tell you, it helps whether it's through tears or whether it's through talking, talking to God, talking to others, and even self-talk. It helps us to do that in order to recover from our depression. And then, here, a part of the remedy is regaining our perspective. Elijah has, at this point, a distorted view of himself and of God, you might say. And and he's focused on everything negative instead of the positive. You know, he could have already looked back and he could have thought about this great victory and that great victory. He's not talking about any of that. He's not thinking about any of that. He's not thinking about what a high privilege it was for him to be chosen of God to be a prophet. He's not thinking about that. He's not focused on anything but the negative. You know, and we all, I think, get there sometime or another to where some way we lose our perspective and we need to get it back. I want you to notice, and I'm going to take time to read at least part of it, how God revealed himself in a fresh new way, helping him to regain his perspective, beginning in verse 10. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, overthrown thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth. And stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altar, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I only, I am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on the way to the wilderness of Damascus. God is helping him regain his focus and this enables him to return to service look at verse number 19 so he departed thence and found Elisha I'll say more about that in just a little bit so he's back on his feet again he's headed now in the right direction again he has ministry in mind instead of misery Many years ago, someone asked the famous psychiatrist Carl Menninger a question and wanted advice for people that are suffering depression. And everybody there in the audience 
figured that Menninger was going to say, you need to consult a psychiatrist. And he didn't say that. He shocked everyone when he made this statement, quote, lock up your house, go across the railroad tracks, find someone in need, and do something to help that person. Well, that's good advice. <laughs> if you want to get out of, out of depression, you've got to shift your focus, regain your perspective. Instead of wallowing in self-pity, he's saying you've got to get out there and do what you can to help others. That's good advice for everybody. I read a statement that was, you know how sometimes you'll just hear a nugget of truth that will just light up your life for a moment that, that you thought, why didn't I think of that? And someone said, don't let despair be the doxology of your life. Don't let despair be the doxology of your life. For you kids, the doxology, of course, whenever we come down, you know, to, to, to the end of the service and what have you, or whenever we're, you know, expressing our feelings about it and we're summing everything up and, and whenever it comes to our life, don't let the doxology, you know, be about our despair. It's horrible to come to the end of the life and thinking that that's, that's all our mind has been on. Now, notice verse 19. Here we see the recovery of it. And, and there's a progression to this, so follow along with me. Talking about his recovery. First of all, we see him under the tree. Now, under the tree, we find a picture of self-occupation. He's really not thinking about anything else. He's not thinking about he's not thinking about the the poor families of those of those prophets, the prophets of God that died. He he doesn't say, Oh, I feel so sorry for them. You know how horrible it is. I wanna I wanna go by and see if I can be of any help to them. Not a word about that. He is preoccupied with self there under the tree. Secondly, notice we move on and he's under or in the cave. Now this is a picture of fearful apprehension. You know, I launched out one time and I got involved and, you know, and, and even though I got the victory, what did it get me? I, you know, that I'm about to be killed. And now there's this fearful apprehension, I've got to hide. You don't know how many people I've heard over the years say, somebody, for example, that maybe they, they always want to sing special music and they tried and someone said something that was a little bit negative or at least they took it that way. You know, it might be that it wasn't meant that way at all, but they're so sensitive about it, they took it that way. And they made the statement, well, I'm, I'm just never, I'm never, I'm never going to sing another special. And there's so many times that we give up because we're fearful that our efforts are going to be in vain or our efforts are not going to be appreciated or whatever it is. So he's hiding now in a cave. Then we read on and we find him there on the mountain. And it's there on the mountain that he receives a new revelation. And this is where God speaks to him in a small, still voice. 
A small, still voice. It wasn't the wind. It wasn't the fire. It wasn't the earthquake. It wasn't any of those things. Just a small, still voice. Now remember, he just made the statement. He said, all of the other prophets are dead and I'm the only one that's left. And God's showing him there's great importance in just a small, still voice. Elijah, you might feel like what you're doing is in vain. You might, you might feel like that nobody is listening, that it'll not accomplish anything. But with your small, still voice, I've got big plans for you. And when you read on, you, you, you discover there in verse number, what was it, verse 15 and 16, and on down through verse 19, he tells him that I want you to go, I want you to anoint a new king and appoint a new successor. Now, look, that's a big deal whenever you are appointed, you know, to anoint a new king. And it's a really big deal whenever it comes to, comes to the matter of appointing a new successor to his ministry. And we'll look at that later. Now, it moves on now. We go from the mountaintop. Now he's back in the wilderness. And it's there in the wilderness we see him being restored. That is, that he is back to work. The restoration is now complete. The prophet is back in service. I'm so glad that our God, as I've said, our God is the God of second chances. You know, even when we fail Him, God's willing to forgive and God's willing to restore us and God's willing to use us again. And I want you to notice something as we bring this to a close that is really important. And that is that when He returned to service, that's when He finds the successor to His ministry. And that shows me how important this whole matter is because it's in the pathway of our duty as God's people that we discover exactly what is needed to make ministry a success. He's, he's thrown the towel in. He has given up. God said, no, there's still something that I need for you to do. He goes out, he anoints a king, he appoints his new successor. You know... So many times we think that it's all about us. And in reality, it's never about us. We think it's all about now. And it's not about now, it's about later. Not about us, it's about God. And whenever, and it's only when we continue to fulfill our duty, our responsibilities, that we establish the certainty of a continuing ministry. I wish I was at liberty to say to you what someone said to Brother Kenneth, and I'm not, but it, uh, I wish I had permission to do that, but somebody may be watching the, this, this service tonight, and I don't want to needlessly offend anyone. Let me tell you, there are so many churches right now that are stagnated. I mean, they are dead in the water. 
Now, certainly, you know, we're not seeing near as much accomplished as we'd like to. Like see more people saved, more people baptized, more people joining the church. I, I don't want to break my arm patting ourselves on the back, but I'm, I'm simply saying, believe me, there are churches in a whole lot worse shape. And the sad thing about it is when they look to the future, it's obvious that everything is all downhill. And, and if a church is going to have a continuing ministry, that means those of us that are involved in the ministry dare not give up. You know, we all need to think about how our life will affect the next generation. I am so glad that we've got people in this church that are deeply concerned about children. Thank God for that ministering to those children, teaching those children and helping them become the servants of the Lord. And when we look at our, you know, we look at our Awana program, for example, and we think about so many people that have come up through Awana that are now teaching Sunday school, officers in the church, and, you know, that, that, that are doing things for the Lord. And I'm reminded of what it says about David. It says that, by the will of God, he served his own generation. You know, we can't serve any other generation. We can't go back in history and change anything about that. And the future's not here yet. We really can't do anything about the future except, except as we minister to our generation. And we ought to have a deep concern about the future minister. It's not all about what happens right here and right now while you and I are alive. It's what happens after we're dead and gone. He appointed the successor to his ministry because he didn't give up. And if we don't give up, you know, there's a lot of different ways to give up. You know, it's one thing to say, well, I give up and walk out the door and quit attending church and just, you know, th throw in the towel in that way. It's another thing to give up in the sense, well, you know, I know as a Christian, I, I'm, you know, I've got to keep attending church. That look bad on me. And so we keep attending church and so forth, but we really don't have our heart in what we're doing and you know that that's why that's why we need uh, we need revivals. I think it was Billy Sunday who preached so many revivals many years ago, and someone in a with a critical spirit said to him, Billy. He said, "I noticed you keep going having all these revivals," and he says, uh, "Do you think it does any good? They don't last. You know, people get excited for a little while, and then it's back to." Back to usual, you know, they don't last, doesn't do any good, I don't think. Billy Sunday said, well, you know, neither does a bath, but it doesn't hurt to take one every once in a while, you know. And uh, so, you know, we, we need not just one big revival that's going to last through the length of our life. We need a reviving daily, weekly, monthly that, that, that we might you know, stay in touch with our mission in this life because it will matter. It will matter. I, uh, our family got together on Thanksgiving and boy, we had a house full. 
in all of those little kids. And I read uh, the 100th Psalm that I ta taught on Tuesday night here. And again, I emphasize the very last part of that psalm where it talks about God's truth enduring to all generations. And what a, what a great comfort that is because so many times those of us with grandchildren and great-grandchildren, we wonder to ourselves, oh my, what's this world going to be like in another 20 years? What's it going to be like when they're grown and they're going to have to fight with this and fight with that and have all of these difficulties. I, I'm just so worried about them. Well, God's truth endureth to all generations. God will still be around when you and I are dead and gone. Amen. He'll still be here, still be available. And it's our job now to help them to see that they will find their help in the Lord. So when they're facing the very things that you've gone through in your life, they'll know that the Lord is their helper, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Let's all stand together. Defeating depression. I didn't say it's always easy, but it's always extremely important that we do not allow our depression to destroy our ministry. Father, how we thank you tonight for being so loving, so patient, so tender in dealing with us after we fail so miserably. Lord, we think about Elijah and the pressure that he was under, and we think about the great failure of him being on the run and giving up. And Lord, if we're honest, we know that all of us at some point in some time have felt really exactly the same way. We didn't hide under a juniper tree, but some way or another, we just isolated ourselves to the point that we cut you out of our life, at least momentarily. We shut others out of our life, and we just felt like crawling up in the corner and giving up. And we're so thankful that you didn't give up on us. And Lord, help us tonight to be challenged as we leave here to defeat those fits of depression that come upon us that we might minister effectively. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. While we stand and as we sing tonight. Page number two. Come, Fountain.